In June, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the latest major legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act in California v. Texas. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Nicholas Bagley, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Professor Bagley has written a perspective article about the court's decision in this case and the ACA's legal future. Professor Bagley, could you start by explaining the arguments made in this lawsuit and how the case found its way to the Supreme Court? Sure. These arguments are difficult to distill into a quick tagline, but it basically runs like this. Back in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court held that the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate was constitutional, but only because it was a tax. If you understood the mandate to be a command to buy insurance, well, Congress didn't have the power to issue that kind of command. It only had the power to tax your choice to go without insurance. So fast forward to the failed effort in 2017 to undo the Affordable Care Act after President Trump was elected, and the consolation prize that the Republicans reached for at the end of the year when they passed their big tax legislation. And that consolation prize was the elimination of the tax penalty for going without insurance. The idea was that the individual mandate was too much of an infringement on liberty, that Republicans thought that even if the ACA didn't work as well, if it were eliminated, that was okay. So they got rid of the penalty and left it at that. Everybody crowed about how the individual mandate had been repealed. But there was a group of red state attorneys general that saw an opportunity. They said, well, hold on. Back in 2012, the Supreme Court said you could only sustain the individual mandate as a tax, and now Congress has gotten rid of the penalty for going without insurance. So the individual mandate, which is just the instruction to buy insurance, the word shall in the statute, well, that word shall is still there, but there's no penalty associated for going without insurance. Therefore, the individual mandate must be unconstitutional. It's beyond Congress's power to tell people to buy insurance. And beyond that, because the individual mandate is an essential part of the Affordable Care Act, we know that from 2012, well, the entire law has to go. Now, I should emphasize in stating these arguments that I think most legal observers, including me, think they're ridiculous. The notion that in 2017, Congress meant to make the individual mandate more coercive, the notion that Congress was going to adopt a law that was unconstitutional, the notion that a $0 mandate is somehow essential to the whole statute, all of that seems like a real stretch as a legal matter. And so from the beginning, this lawsuit didn't have great odds. And you know, going into it, I think a lot of people thought the Supreme Court was likely to rule against the plaintiffs. So what did the court decide and what was its reasoning? So the court kind of dodged resolving the case on the merits by offering a procedural holding. So what the Supreme Court said by a seven to two majority was that the plaintiffs didn't have standing to sue. Now in the law, when you have standing to sue, it's because you've got something to complain about. There's an injury that's been caused to you that you can point to and say, hey, courts, you can fix this. And because you can fix this, I'm going to ask for your help. But if you don't really have an injury, well, you can't bring a lawsuit. And the plaintiffs in the case were first the red state attorneys general. And the trouble for them was that the individual mandate applies to individuals. It doesn't apply to states. And they tried to get around that by conscripting two private consultants from Texas who were individuals who submitted affidavits to the court below saying, we 
feel compelled by this shall language in the Affordable Care Act. Now, this is almost certainly not true, just as a matter of their own personal sort of attitudes, right? Like nobody's actually going to feel compelled by the word shall in a statute they've never read. But set that aside, they said, we feel compelled. And the Supreme Court said, well, hold on. It's not enough to feel compelled by a law, right? You have to actually be compelled by the law. You can't be compelled by a law that has no enforcement mechanism. And so therefore, you don't have standing to sue either. Neither the red states have standing, nor do these two individual consultants have standing. Therefore, we're not going to hear this case. We're not going to hear this complaint. And we're going to send it back down and say the whole thing is dismissed. Conveniently, that allowed, I think, some of the more conservative justices the chance not to have to address this very hot button political issue and could just get this off the Supreme Court's docket with a minimum of fuss. So you said earlier that few independent legal observers saw much merit in the lawsuit's arguments. And against that, there is the issue of the more conservative justices. So was there any concern that the court might actually side with the challengers or was this outcome pretty broadly anticipated? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the answer is maybe a little bit of both. It was pretty broadly anticipated, especially after oral argument, where the justices, at least some of the conservative justices, signaled that they didn't buy the most audacious of the red state plaintiffs' arguments, and in particular were skeptical that a zero-dollar mandate was essential to the rest of the law. That said, you know, the risk of a very bad thing happening is worth worrying about. And so I think given the way that the Affordable Care Act has become part of the plumbing of our healthcare system in the United States, the risk that it might be precipitously torn out was serious enough to say, wait, hold on, let's ask some hard questions about how this case is going to go. So I think it was with a big sigh of relief that people saw the Supreme Court's decision. From my perspective, the thing that really distinguishes this case from the case when it was filed back in 2012, back in 2012, Republicans really wanted to win the lawsuit. They were throwing everything they could at the case. They were barnstorming the country, making the legal arguments. They were kind of doing whatever they could to move the, what were initially considered at the time, pretty off the wall legal arguments. They were working hard to move them on the wall. This time around, the Republican political establishment had very mixed feelings about this lawsuit. The red state attorneys general, they know that, you know, to become governor someday, they, they all have to win a primary election with a very conservative primary electorate. So they're going to cater to the hardest right of their constituency. But policymakers in Congress, I think, had a different attitude. I think they thought, gosh, you know, if we win this lawsuit without a replacement on the table, tens of millions of people are going to lose their insurance. And who do you think they're going to blame? So the Republican political establishment signaled pretty loudly to the Supreme Court that it didn't want to win this case. Republican legal elites didn't do what they needed to do to make these arguments seem plausible to the Supreme Court justices. And so I think the kind of lack of public engagement on these cockamamie legal arguments ended up making a real difference here. I would have been much more nervous about the lawsuit if the Republican political establishment had thrown its weight behind the effort to make these arguments seem reasonable, but it just didn't. So given that, are you confident that this case is the last one that would have uprooted the entire law? Do you think that the core components of the ACA are now safe? Yeah, I do. You never want to make bold predictions about this kind of thing, because I think we've had three of these lawsuits, and I think many people expected there to be one at most. That said, each of the three major lawsuits targeting the Affordable Care Act has been weaker than the last, and this one was especially laughable. And once a law has been implemented, it just becomes much harder to uproot. And the lift to get the Supreme Court to do that is much heavier. So I don't expect broadside legal challenges to be a problem for the Affordable Care Act. We do have 
further legal challenges percolating about aspects of the Affordable Care Act. For example, there are a couple of cases out of Texas right now involving constitutional challenges to parts of the Affordable Care Act that guarantee $0 coverage for certain preventive services, including contraception for women. Those cases, I think, raise very serious legal questions, and I think we're going to see them work their way through the courts. But even if the plaintiffs were to prevail, it's not going to take down the whole Affordable Care Act or undo the core of it, which is the insurance expansions. So important litigation, some of it will surely crop up in connection with the Biden administration's implementation of the law. But I am pretty confident in the prediction that they will be, compared to these last lawsuits, pretty small potatoes. So speaking of the Biden administration's possible action, what steps do you think it's likely to take to shore up or expand the ACA? Is there any tricky legal territory that might be encountered? Actually, the Biden administration has it relatively easy because of the funny rules governing reconciliation. So right now, the Democrats don't have a filibuster-proof Senate majority, right? They've only got 50 Democratic senators, and it's a razor-thin margin, which means that any legislation touching on health care, they're going to have to pass through the reconciliation process, which allows you to sidestep the filibuster. And the rules governing reconciliation mean that you really can only make changes to the law that affect spending or taxes. So that means that lots of changes that many supporters of the Affordable Care Act might like to see are going to be off the table. You're not going to be talking about Medicare for all or some big overhaul of the Affordable Care Act. What you might see instead, and this has been foreshadowed by some moves made in the coronavirus bills that have passed so far, you might see the Biden administration moving to enhance the subsidies that are available for the purchase of private plans on the exchanges. You see Democrats right now working hard to come up with some way to get Medicaid to people in the states that declined so far to expand it. I think those efforts are going to continue, although they raise really tricky political and design questions. But I think that we're going to see some tinkering on the margins on the financial side. But I'd be surprised if the Biden administration goes to the mat on you know, dramatic changes to the way we provide health insurance to people or the, the basic architecture of the Affordable Care Act. So finally, now that this case has been decided, how do you think scholars are going to look back on the various political and legal challenges to the ACA and the Republicans' attempt to undermine it? What do you take away from the last decade or so of these efforts? I want to take from it at least two lessons, and I think we'll look back on it with this in view. The first is that, of course, legal challenges are a particular kind of approach to trying to undermine a law, but they are nonetheless political efforts to undermine laws, which is to say that all the core challenges we've seen are politics by other means. And it's not to say that a legal challenge is just strictly political or that you know what a justice is going to decide based on the political party of the appointing president, but it's important to understand the relationship between the cut and thrust of partisan politics and high stakes constitutional challenges. That's an interesting and I think fertile domain for folk to look at. And I think the Affordable Care Act provides a rich context to try to understand that. The second thing that I think that we'll look back on and sort of wonder about is we've seen unremitting hostility from the Republican Party over the course of more than a decade to the most important piece of social legislation adopted in 50 years. And what I think that may underscore is the difficulty that we will have in making any significant changes across a number of domains. So you can think of that, the ACA as an example of just the big fights that get kicked up over healthcare. I think it's actually 
more of a signal about the kinds of partisan disputes that are likely to erupt over any effort to redistribute income in a manner that can make sure people at the bottom can afford the things that we think as a society we ought to be able to afford, or efforts to redistribute political power, right? You can imagine Puerto Rico statehood or DC statehood or voter ID laws or whatever else getting caught up in some of the same political maelstrom. I think what we're witnessing is a kind of scorched earth approach to policymaking that, frankly, I don't think is going to get better anytime soon and could very well get worse. So I think of the Affordable Care Act as less a isolated case about health insurance and more maybe an omen of where we're at as a country that doing big things is going to be hard. And when we do those big things, they will be caught in a kind of political firestorm, the likes of which we didn't see as often, even 30, 40 years ago. Thank you, Professor Bagley. 